Welcome to Tech on Reg, the podcast that explores all things at the intersection of law, technology, and high regulated industry. We're talking fintech, regtech, sextech, and more with thought leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world to share insights, trade viewpoints, and get us all thinking about responsible innovation. And here is your host, Dara Tukowski. Welcome to another episode of Tech on Reg, the podcast that explores all things at the intersection of law, technology, and highly regulated industry. Today's episode is an interesting one. Um, We decided to put a little bit of space between the recording of this episode and the well-known situation um, of Robinhood, Reddit, and the infamous GameStop trading frenzy. Now that Robinhood's uh, CEO has had to testify before Congress, we've got an incoming new chair of the SEC. We thought now would be the perfect time to sort of look back at some of the craziness that happened in January and dissect it a little bit. So to help me do that today, we've got Jennifer Tesher from the Financial Health Network and part of the Provoke.fm family and the host of Emerge Everywhere. And we also have Carl Voles, a securities litigator, a former colleague of mine, and the founder of Pontum Law. So welcome to the show, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Sarah. So even if uh, you, as one of my listeners, uh, aren't one to really follow the stock market or do stock trading, uh, the name GameStop should obviously still be very familiar to you, given the frenzy that it kicked up earlier this year. Um, And that's because the uh, U.S. chain of video game retail stores, which about a year ago was valued at $3.25 per share, saw its price rocket in January. On January 26th this year, the stock closed at $145.60. The next day, it peaked at $3.45, and then finally peaking at $469.42 on January 28th. So how did a company with this doomed, outdated business model become the most talked about stock on the planet? Well, the answer was Reddit and Wall Street bets. With a group of retail investors on the internet forum Reddit, who raised the stock price by 1,700%. So uh, Carl, Jennifer, there's there's a lot to unpack here. Um, We've got a situation you know, and and really at the center of this was a group of retail investors who was trying to fight back against some billion dollar hedge funds. Jennifer, where do you think the source of that frustration really came from? Yeah, you know, we're living in we're living in challenging times. Uh, and, you know, while we see um, things like the mob at the Capitol in January, this is a different form of mob. Um, and on the in general, on the other side of the political spectrum. Um, but there's a lot in common. The, there's uh, frustration over the little guy getting screwed um, and not being able to get ahead. Uh, there's uh, a lack of trust. Uh, no one believes what anyone says, what the government says, what the media says. Um, uh, we live in our own echo chambers, in this case, the Reddit echo chamber. Um, and you know, this was a, I'm going to get some, I'm going to get some of mine, uh, and I'm tired of being screwed over. I think, I think that was for some people, um, uh, an element. I think once it went viral, I think there were lots of completely average consumers who may not have ever really done any investing, um, who saw an opportunity to maybe make some money 
um, and who had, you know, who didn't have any of this angst um, and who in the end uh, may have gotten uh, hurt financially as a result. So we should definitely put a pin in that because that's how Robinhood, right, enters the picture with a lot of these uh, users on their platform who wanted to sort of get in on some of the action that was started by by the Reddit users. So over the years, right, GameStop's uh, stock had been falling and it was this group of Reddit users who noticed hedge funds starting to really heavily short sell the stock. Um, particularly the $13 billion hedge fund called Melvin Capital. Uh, so uh, that's when sort of the, the, source of, the source of that angst really started from this concept of, of short selling and GameStop, you could have replaced GameStop for any other you know, number of stocks that, that was also in a sort of similarly situated position. But Carl, uh, before we sort of get into the technical details of what actually happened, um, can you take like a minute and sort of explain short selling to the listeners? Yeah, sure. So when an investor believes that a stock is likely to drop in value, um, they can short sell a stock. So it's it's a, an expectation that the stock is going to drop. And technically speaking, they're sort of borrowing the stock from someone who owns it. And if it goes down as they expect, um, they can execute the trade on the, the short trade, uh, and then they can get the profit from the downside on it. From the they've essentially borrowed against it. If the price goes up, um, they will actually have to purchase the stock, and then to cover their short bet. And if they have to purchase it, a lot of times is what happened with Melvin Capital, what happened with Citron, and some other hedge funds that are kind of notorious shorters. Um, they got caught in the in the pinch, and that process sort of exacerbates the the rise in the value of the stock. So, not only is there this group of Reddit investors, Wall Street bets, who are themselves purchasing the stock and driving it up, they're creating a a, a pinch for the short guys, who end up having to buy the stock, and further drive up the price. So it ends up this, from the Wall Street bets guys' perspective, it's a virtuous cycle for them. Um, it's a terrible, disastrous cycle for Citron or for Melvin Capital, who have to cover their short positions. Um, and at some point, you know, for a retail investor, they can only do so much before they're called to short to to satisfy their short position. Um, with Citron or with uh, Melvin, they were able to hold out a little longer, but eventually they had to close out their positions and basically pay the piper, as it were, and lost a bunch of money. A ton of money, absolute ton of money. Yeah, yeah. I think it's I think it's important to actually remember that a decade ago, in the lead up to the financial crisis, this exact same phenomenon is in part what drove the bubble that led to the crash. Uh, people shorting tranches of mortgages that securities <laughs> they were expecting um, were. Um, they expected that the borrowers were not going to be able to make repay their mortgages and that those securities were going to tank. Uh, and um, this is um, different players uh, started from a different perspective. But I think uh, uh, that what happened in the crisis, I think for a lot of people still looms large. You know, the government bailed out the uh, uh, Wall Street, but, you know, 
left the main street out to dry. Um, and boy, all of, uh, you know, all of Wall Street, you know, made a ton of money um, on these, uh, these short sales, uh, betting against the American consumer. So the Reddit, the Reddit group this, and the subreddit group sort of uh, that was at play here that sort of, I would say, sparked, a, sparked the frenzy. They weren't, they weren't the sole contributors of it because once it started getting frenetic, everybody started getting frenetic. And that, Jennifer, to your point, that included a group of retail investors, users who had no beef with hedge funds, no beef with GameStop, but just sort of wanted in on the action. And for the unsophisticated investor, uh, the very popular platform of Robinhood became front and center for sort of the average sort of a casual investor who was like, this seems like a fun game. Let's get in on this game. So, uh, Carl, uh, do you want to sort of walk us through what happened with Robinhood? Sure. Yeah. So I... I I agree that the, um, let me just say first that the, the folks on Wall Street Bets, um, specifically a guy that uh, on, on YouTube, he goes by Roaring Kitty, and he actually testified in front of Congress recently too. Um, he really started the frenzy even last year. So as you said, GameStop was trading at about three bucks. He started pumping it last year with this sort of mix of... Um, the real populist garbage and, you know, that the man is out to get our beloved GameStop and this sort of um, MBA sound bites of stuff that I think to some people might sound convincing. So he was pumping it up all last year. And then when this really started to hit in December and January and the prices really started to rocket, people were looking for ways to be able to trade in GameStop cheaply. They didn't want to have to pay the transaction fees or the, the trade fees that they normally have to pay with larger brokers, even five or $10. You know, if they were buying a small amount of stock, they didn't want to have to pay five or 10 bucks for a trade. Um, and so enter Robinhood, which is um, a, a easy app to download. You can hook it up to your bank account in five minutes and you have deposits, money deposited, and it's fun. I mean, it's like Candy Crush for investors. It, you put money in, you get a little confetti shower, you get a congratulations, um, you make a trade, no matter at what size, you get uh, confetti, and then you actually get free stock for joining. And if you get other people to join, you get some free stock as well. No telling which stocks you're going to get, but something. It's stuff. It's stuff. Prizes. It's free stuff. And it's exciting. Um, and so- It's today's Pizza Hut coupon. It is. Right? Yeah. And, <laughs> and I think that, as Jennifer was saying, this grows a lot out of a long-standing feeling that the little guy is on the outside looking in at all these people making tons and tons of money on Wall Street. And so here's an opportunity um, both to potentially make a ton of money on the on the upswing here. Uh, and so they're they're going to Robinhood and they're um, you know making trades, they're buying GameStop. In some cases they're trading above their their pay scale. They really don't have the knowledge or, or experience to be able to use the more complex trading techniques that are available on GameStop. And they're actually promoted on GameStop, um, like uh, options trading. Um, and so- You mean, not, you mean not promoted on Robinhood? On Robinhood. I'm sorry. On Robinhood. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was going to say it's a, new, it's a new line of business for GameStop. It, it would be probably the only <laughs> successful line of business. From the J-hook, right? It, Just that's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so they- people really got wrapped up in it and they started 
spending more and more money investing into GameStop uh, on Robinhood because it was so simple, because it appeared to be uh, free. I mean, you didn't have any apparent transaction costs. And so it really carefully, started ratcheting carefully up. Carefully chosen word, Mr. Yeah. Bowles. It well, did appear, I think Mr. Did appear Gensler, to be free. Yeah, exactly. I think that's uh, a, a phrase that Mr. Gensler used in his testimony uh, before Congress a couple weeks ago. Um, but it is true. I mean, it doesn't appear to be any cost to you. In fact, there are costs associated with it, and I'm sure we can talk about that later. But um, as this frenzy worked up, and as there appeared to be more and more volatility, these incredible increases in the in the value of the stock in a very short period of time, uh, that puts a lot of people on notice. And so, like you know, any other trading company, any other trading app, um, Robinhood doesn't actually make the trades themselves. They go to uh, a clearinghouse. They go to Citadel, which actually performs the trades. Um, and then there's a clearinghouse where all trades around the world in regulated stock, or around the U.S., I should say, uh, in regulated stocks are are cleared through, and that that's basically a process that takes a couple days. So the clearinghouse insists that all of its members put funds on deposit to cover the possibility that those trades would be withdrawn, or the purchases would be withdrawn. And so every day, all these companies like Robinhood get a notice from the clearinghouse saying, this is how much we need you to have on deposit today. And it's typically you know, within a couple percentage points of the previous day. It isn't something that varies a great deal. Um, but what ended up happening to Robinhood, and it's now become sort of iconic that the CEO got a phone call at 3 o'clock in the morning and was told that he had to have $3 billion on deposit the next day which was what he called an order of magnitude greater than what was on deposit the previous day. Um, games, uh, the GameStop stock had been trading and very, very frothy all night long. Um, it, it appears that the clearinghouse said, uh, you know, this is just crazy. We can't be sure that they're going to be able to satisfy these trades. And so we need to increase pretty dramatically the amount that they have on deposit. Um, Robinhood had recently raised about $2 billion, so to be able to put $3 billion on deposit on a moment's notice is kind of a, a big ask. Uh, and I mean, so, there, there's, 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 not a ton, there's not a ton, maybe except for Ken Griffin himself, who have a, who have a billion lying around. Exactly, yeah. Um, maybe Elon Musk might be able to do it too, but uh, which I'm sure will come to later as well. An interesting but, endorser of one of those subreddit threads, but and, I'll, indeed. Put, I'll, put, I'll put that off to the side for a moment. Yeah, that's a whole uh, host of things we could talk about with Elon Musk. Um, so, so, Carl, you bring up a good point about how functionally this all works. Robinhood isn't the one who actually executes the trades. They're in truth, they're a platform um, giving a population access to these types of transactions they may not have otherwise had access before. And certainly on its surface, not at a price that they would have had access to uh, the ability to transact like this before. But they have, you know, they have to make sure that Citadel will execute those trades. Um, the clearinghouse has to ensure that, you know, the their liquidity requirements are met. It does seem though, and I am not generally a conspiracy theorist, but um, Carlos, you trained me to do long, long ago, when you see facts laid in front of you, it's hard to some ignore some of those facts. So Citadel does seem to be at the center of, a, 
at this, we'll just, I'm going to put a period at the end of that sentence. They seem to be at the center. Um, <laughs> That's fair. Um, uh, and, and when I say that, what I, what I really mean is like, okay, so they're, they're going to be responsible for executing uh, Robin Hood's trades. They're going to be the ones responsible for ensuring Robin Hood meets the liquidity requirements because they are, you know, they're going to be the ones transacting. But on the same time, Citadel was also the one trying to make Melvin Capital whole for the losses that it experienced as a result of the trading frenzy. That seems like a choice was made, right? Because there, if the, if there was money to be to be lent to support one group o- over another, it appears as though Citadel made the choice, like, no, we're gonna we're gonna help make sure this hedge fund doesn't go under, as opposed to no, we'll maybe support. Robinhood and 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 their users so that they can transact in the way they would like to transact. And again, I'm not passing judgment. I'm sure there's lots of details, but on surface, like each of those things are facts. And you know, when looked at in conjunction, it leaves people scratching their heads. And for you know, for for the general public who are relying on like mainstream media to follow this saga, you know, not everyone has a Law 360 subscription. You know, it seems weird, right? <laughs> Yeah, I, I think there's a there's a lot to that, and I think as you said, there's a lot to unpack. I mean, you have a, you have a, a Reddit group which is very conspiracy minded to begin with. It's been sort of whipped up into a frenzy by folks like Roaring Kitty. It's, I think his name is Deep Effing Value uh, on Reddit, but um, you know that it's us against the man, and uh, you know this is where we get our peace. And we're finally got a seat at the table. And so when you see a set of facts like those that you've presented, which are accurate from everything that I've heard and seen, um, it, it looks like it stinks. And, you know, Vlad uh, is the CEO of Robinhood, Vlad Tenev. He's a young guy. He's not tremendously experienced in dealing with the public. And I think some of his initial statements were a bit of a misstep. And I think he... Um, may have actually increased the perception that there was some conspiracy going on against his own customers um, and against the retail traders that many of whom ended up getting hurt, many of whom made a ton of money too. But you know, we, we're not going to talk about that right now. We'll talk about the people who lost money. Not right now. We can talk. We can talk about them later. But Jen, Jennifer, I think this is an important area for you to chime in, um, and those customers and those retail investors, because those perceptions do matter, right? As use as users um, of of the platform, um, the way they relied on the platform, the representations that the platform made to them, um, you know, the query whether or not uh, Robinhood has oversimplified a process and maybe, you know, not given the level of um, appreciation to the seriousness of, you know, the, the business that was being transacted. So um, what do you think? Um, you know, it's interesting. If you go to the Robinhood website and you look at how they describe um, uh how they make money. They have a whole section, how we make money. They could not be more transparent um, in pretty plain English about how the trades are cleared, that that's who's paying them. Um, and I, I say that not to let Robin Hood off the hook, but to say that 20 or 30 years of um, 
of consumer protection by disclosure has failed. And this would be yet another example of that. Um, I don't think Robinhood was necessarily um, hiding the facts about how they make money and how it's free to the user. Um, it's right there on their website. And it's not in like, you know, nine point font. Um, they have a whole section dedicated to it. Um, but reading that alone as a retail investor doesn't necessarily mean that you either have the financial wherewithal to be able to be using some of these more sophisticated tools and be, and be resilient if things don't break your way. Um, and it also doesn't mean that reading that then as a retail consumer, um, it doesn't mean that you understand the implications of that. Um, you know, I'm not big on financial education. Like we can, we can teach our way out of the challenges that we have. I, I you know, uh, I just don't buy that. Um, if everyone were smarter and better, you know, they would know how to use this platform more effectively. Um, and so I think it comes back to this question of, uh, you know, uh, what are the guardrails from a regulatory perspective about, um, about suitability uh, and about um, requirements um, that particularly for, the, for, frankly, this is just gambling. Let's just call it what it is. It's gambling. Um, what kind of uh, guidelines should be in place to make sure that consumers um, have sufficient backstop of their own uh, to weather uh, a, a significant downturn. So Jennifer, I think you make a really good point about the uh, regulation by disclosure has been largely ineffective. Um, I would agree with you wholeheartedly. I don't care how fulsome or plain language those disclosures are. I think we've seen in not just not just the trading uh, world, but in lots of different areas where you know pages and pages of disclosures just not only are they not read, even if they're read, they're not understood and nobody's being protected from anything. Um, but it's like a nice little security blankie for industry to just say, look, we published our disclosures. That's great. Um, but the average retail investor didn't, didn't have an appreciation for is that if I bought a bunch on day one, I might not be able to sell them on day two. And if I'm not able to sell them on day two, I don't really understand why that might not be the case. Um, and I, you know, I think to a large extent, they still don't understand that. Yeah, I think they're different disclosures too. So the disclosure you're talking about, Jennifer, was mandated by the SEC settlement that they made in December. So I'd be interested to see when they made that disclosure because they settled uh, claims by the SEC for some 65 million, and then um, they're setting aside some another 30 or 35 million for FINRA for a settlement that they anticipate there. And and those were disclosures which were mandated by as a result of an investigation into whether they were fairly disclosing the costs. But the, the disclosure I think that's more important is the one that Dara just mentioned, which is in the user agreement, which nobody reads. I mean, it's, nobody reads, right? I know you're doing this on your phone and it's a 60 page right. disclosure document. You couldn't read it if you wanted to, you'd go crazy. So the one related to, you know, we can turn off your spigot anytime we please for just about any reason is essentially a single line in what amounts to a 60-page document, there's no way anybody's reading that. And frankly, 
you know, the, the disclosure that's on their website right now about who, how they get paid and how they make money, nobody cares about that. And I think you're absolutely right, Dara, that it's just one of those things that people, it doesn't impact me. And this is like, it goes into sort of the minutia of the operational aspects and the plumbing behind these transactions. Um, and, and people don't really care as long as it's cheap. They're not paying $5 for trade or $10 for trade on Scott Trade or wherever they can go cheap. You know, they don't care if somebody's picking up a, you know, a tenth of a penny on every one of their transactions and whether it's technically best execution or not. Those are things that regulators care about and maybe some people within the, you know, the organizations that uh, the self-regulatory organizations that they're subject to, but retail investors don't care if they're getting a, you know, a slightly worse deal. Um, and you know, buying GameStop for you know four sixty point oh one versus four sixty point oh one six 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 six. I mean, nobody cares about that. I mean, I think the other thing that's interesting is, um, you know, we herald fintech and 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 apps like Robinhood for simplifying the process and simplifying this complex. Uh, world uh, by making a fantastic user experience. But the problem is it's complicated for a reason. The back end is complicated. And um, uh, while people may not care or may not read all 60 pages, um, uh, that complexity has an impact on them. So on the one hand, FinTech simplifies, dumbs it down, if you will, right? Um, uh, but doesn't is then in a position to protect people um, when there's one of these what I would call uh, like a tail event. This was this was an unusual event. Um, it's not like they're regularly halting trading, right? This that was a pretty big deal, and I think that's the other thing that that is true of entrepreneurs in general is that um, uh, they are optimists by nature and no one's thinking about this uh, like black swan event. Um, and certainly the average consumer isn't thinking about it either. Um, but that's what we're really protecting people. What we're supposed to be protecting people from is that. Uh, well, more lawyers than try else. to think about the black swan events and then people, people tell us to stop being Debbie Downers. That, that's, what, that's what happens. Hey, you're um, standing in the way of business. That's right. We're standing. Yeah. We're standing in the way of That's business. Right. But right, it, you know, people like Carl and I are our jobs are to ri mitigate risk for our clients. So when we point out risk, even in the most unlikely of circumstances, right? Nobody, nobody bets on something. Nobody bets on like a group of rogue Reddit users. You know, uh, you know, creating trading frenzy. Um, you know, nobody bets on a group of angry investors. Um, for whatever interpretation of some, you know, Q4 announcement, filing a piece of securities litigation, either. But you plan, but you plan for it, none like. But good companies plan for it nonetheless, and have to understand how to respond appropriately and sort of take their lumps when when it's time when it's time to do that. Uh, I sort of just go back to it's just like you offered people a bunch of free pizza, and then they kept eating pizza. And then one day you told them there was no more pizza, and people are pissed because they liked their pizza. <laughs> like that's, I uh, you know I I know that that's probably an oversimplification too, but it but, but it doesn't make it untrue. So 
Jennifer, you actually, you wrote a great piece in Forbes recently, sort of about what all of this means. Um, and Carl, we'll talk to you sort of about what this means from a regulatory perspective, what the SEC is going to, what Gary Gensler and the SEC may or may not do in terms of investigating the situation. But there's like the legal and then there's like the actual and practical. Um, so I'm <laughs> very excited that we actually get to have both. So Jennifer, why don't you share with listeners sort of um, your views on what all of this really means for for fintech and, you know, the average consumer? You know, I think trust is at an all-time low globally. If you look at the Edelman Trust Barometer, which has been in existence for over 20 years now, the trend lines are downright scary. Um, we don't trust institutions of pretty much any kind. We certainly don't trust the government. We don't trust media. Um, um, uh, and, you know, fintech has as a category, has sort of sold itself as being for the little guy. Um, democratizing access, whether that's to trading or to credit or to whatever account yeah. services, right? Whatever that is. Um, um, and uh, they've promised them the sun, moon, and stars and that, you know, technology will solve all of your problems. And then when something like this happens, all of a sudden people realize, oh yeah, they're just like everybody else. They're no different than the Wall Street banks or my bank on the corner. Um, what's the difference? Why should I trust them anymore? And if there's, if there's one industry where trust is its lifeblood, that would be finance, right? At the end of the day, exchanging value with people is about trust. Uh, and financial services in the Edelman uh, study is always the least trusted industry. Is it, is it worse than law enforcement now? Has it, um, it has is, it, I think slightly above Congress. Oh boy. Yes. So, um, so I think that the bloom is off the rose for FinTech and you're starting to see that, um, in, um, from a regulatory perspective, from a legislative perspective, like I feel like the knives are out for fintech, um, and these next few years are going to be very interesting with the change of the administration, with new heads of regulatory agencies. Um, you know, the banks, from a competitive perspective, certainly don't want more fintechs getting bank charters. Um, but there's also all kinds of other ways in which um, both the banks and consumer advocacy organizations, I think, are going to look to use the Robin Hood uh, example as to why fintech needs to be um, more heavily regulated. Um, and, you know, time will tell uh, whether uh, this drives down uh, consumer usage of these kinds of products. Watch, we'll end up getting a bunch of rules over the next few years being like, more disclosures, that'll work. Here, <laughs> <laughs> that, that'll be what we do. So, so Carl, what, I guess from, from a, a legal perspective, what now, you know, there was all of this like hyped up congressional testimony. Um, congressional testimony by itself really doesn't mean a whole heck, like doesn't really mean a whole heck of a lot. It's going to be, uh, you know, the regulators who take a closer examination of this. So uh, Mr. Gensler is going to be coming in um, as head of the Securities Exchange Commission. Um, what do you think happens from, from now forward? 
Well, I don't, Gensler's not a huge fan of the retail investor just generally. I mean, he's long been um, a critic of stock picking. I think he wrote a book um, back in the 90s after he made his billions at, uh, or millions, I should say, probably hundreds of millions at uh, uh, Goldman Sachs. Um, he wrote a book just basically saying that uh, day trading is the dumbest thing, one of the four dumbest things ever invented, I think he said. Um, and he clearly really believes that. And his comments in his congressional testimony seem to support that he's going to be skeptical of a company like Robinhood that's seeking to further democratize. Um, I didn't really like that word. I wish there was a better a, a better word because it makes it sound like it's kind of an intrinsically good thing. And I'm not necessarily sure that it is. Um, but I, I think that Gensler is going to take a hard look at Robinhood and other apps like it that make it easier for retail investors to stock pick, um, which is something that he said he doesn't like. Um, I think that the remedy will be additional disclosures. I mean, that's the that's always what they do. Um, wah, it, wah. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe they'll have to put something on their the front of their website that says we can stop you trading at any time for any reason, whenever we feel like it. Um, Trade but, at but your own risk. Yeah, I mean, frankly, I just don't know how much more they 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 need to disclose or what good those disclosures will make. And I think, you know, maybe back when you and I started working together, Dara, that there was a concern the company said that if we disclose too much, it's going to be problematic and it's going to make our stock drop and the company's going to fail. Nowadays, a company like Robinhood is sort of following this Elon Musk model where they just say whatever they want. They're just completely open kimono about everything and they just don't care. I mean, for Robinhood, they, they raised $2.5 billion, $3 billion last year in their last private raise. They were valued at something like like $9 billion in December when they were originally talking about their IPO. And after this debacle, they're now valued at something like $40 billion. So if they go out in March or they go out in you know April, May, June, they're looking at an IPO in you know, somewhere in the $30 to $40 billion range. So what can they say and what can they disclose that's actually going to make them make consumers say we don't want to use you? I mean, how much worse can it get? They raised, I think they added like three or four million users in January during all this stuff and even afterwards. So it's that old adage of, you know, there's no such thing as bad publicity. So the SEC is going to have a hard time rejecting the IPO altogether, period. That's just not going to happen. I mean, the, the guns that, um, that Robinhood has aligned uh, for fighting this battle are incredible. I mean, they hired basically half of Wilmer Hale, um, half of the SEC regulatory class of like 2006, 2007 is on their uh, their legal staff now. Um, so, so they're going to get this through. The SEC might extract some additional disclosures, which is really all they can do. Um, and they're going to, it's going to go through and it's going to, you know, be a public company worth 40, 50, 60 billion dollars, no matter what sort of disclosures they make. And you know why? Is because people still like pizza. They do. Everybody they loves still, pizza. They still like their pizza. Um, you know, uh, and it seems I free feel, too. So it seems like free pizza, even cheap pizza, free pizza for sure. Cheap pizza. Exactly. They like yeah. too. Um, you know, we're, we're sort of at our time. I, I definitely think that this crew should get back together and, you know, uh, a few months or so to see, uh, you know, how this is all playing out. But, uh, 
really, truly thank you for, you know, for a great episode, uh, Jennifer, Carl. Um, I think it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. It'll be interesting to see whether or not the SEC also takes a closer look at, you know, uh, the Reddit users of the world, the subreddits, and whether or not um, his, uh, Mr. Gensler is maybe a predilection uh, for not loving retail investment generally turns his attention in another direction to see whether or not groups like that should be, should be controlled from uh, it for what some people say market manipulation. Yeah, um, that's a whole other episode, I think. Whole other Definitely. episode, yeah. but see, I got, I had to, I had to squeeze it in there for a teaser. Yeah. Um, well, and also, and also, like, how many of these folks who made investments in uh, GameStop are contributing to their four hundred one k? Just to emphasize, you know, uh, <laughs> Gensler's unlove of the retail investor. Right. Mm-hmm. Frankly, I'd rather see that. Um, on love of the retail investor, a lot of love for blockchain. So it'll be really interesting times uh, at the SEC <laughs> over the next over the next few years. Um, but thank you guys so much for your time, Jennifer, Carl. Uh, it's been great. Uh, until next time, everyone. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs>